0: Get ready for Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to finish up chapter 3 today. I'm going to bite off maybe a little bit of a, a bigger chunk, verse 6 through 29, and that's partially my fault because I just got stuck last week in those first five verses, but felt like the Lord had given me that for us then, and so we forge on today with what remains. I'm finding it um, both enjoyable but also slightly challenging to teach this book of Galatians which is a letter and so much of when we take a chunk of text from week to week, we don't want to forget the context of what's being said and the, and the movement and the momentum, right? It's almost like we're taking one of our letters to a family friend or an, an email if you will and just taking paragraph by paragraph so it, it, it does find itself to be challenging from time to time. Um, because I keep wanting to go back and, and remind us, and not reteach, but just remind us of everything that has been read so that we've kind of keep our momentum moving forward. But that might, just be, that might just be me. So, we're teaching through the book of Galatians. I've entitled this series, No Other Gospel, with the intent of grounding our hearts in just the beauty, the joy, the simplicity, the clarity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The better we know what the gospel is, the more equipped we are to live in this day and age, the more prepared we are to make a stand for our faith, the more equipped we are to, to identify and combat error and lies from the spirit of this age, and the more ready we are to be the church as Christ has created her to be and called her to be. Brothers and sisters, the issue or, or the, the truth of the gospel message cannot be taught enough. In fact, it ought to be taught every single week that we gather in some form or fashion. We need the gospel. It was prayed this morning in the, in the pre-worship prayer. We need the gospel for ourselves every day. The gospel is not just for salvation in one moment. The gospel is for daily living. And so it behooves us to know it, to love it, to understand it, to live it, right? So this is why we are in the book of Galatians, to fix ourselves in the beauty of the gospel. And so Paul, thus far, he has been arguing really to, to answer kind of two important questions. Who does God accept and on what basis does God accept them? That's really the, the last two, three chapters in the, in the entirety of the, of the book, really. And the answer that Paul gives is quite simple. It's those who are righteous through their faith in Jesus Christ that are acceptable and pleasing to God. That's how he answers it. It's a simple answer. But he's been arguing through logic and through reason. And now to, to further make his point... Paul is going to reach back into history to the man of Abraham, someone that everyone, including ourselves, is very familiar with. In fact, I would say to the false teachers that Paul is combating, the Judaizers, Abraham might be, apart from Christ, the most significant individual of their faith. And so they know well the man of Abraham. After all, was he not the father of the faith? And it was with Abraham whom the Lord established the covenant of circumcision or circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he made with him, which is the whole point of what the Judaizers are arguing towards and into the Galatian churches. That circumcision must also take place as an outward appearance or as an outward sign of your faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the gospel plus this thing. And so they know Abraham very well, and he's going to use Abraham to argue his assertion that man is justified through faith and not by his efforts in keeping the law, by showing that Abraham's righteousness came not by him doing, but by him believing. And he's going to hit them with their very own argument, with the very same person that they're using to establish their claim Paul now is going to reach into Galatians chapter 3 and he's going to just unveil this brilliant strain of logic. And he's going to point out how Abraham's righteousness through faith came before the law was established through Moses. In other words, it was faith first and then the law that we will see. And Paul will actually count the years, 430 of them, between Abraham's living in faith, And God's establishment of the law through Moses for his people. And so his argument is going to be that, so if righteousness were to come through the law, as some are claiming, how does one reconcile God counting Abraham as righteous through his belief on God's word alone? I'm just giving you kind of the salient points that we're about to read here in chapter 3. And then secondly, he's going to present what seems to be a juxtaposition between the law, which was given through Moses, and the subsequent curses for failure to keep the law. So he's going to to present the law and the purpose of the law. But he's going to compare it seemingly with the promised blessing which was given to Abraham through his faith. But this is going to be his point, and this is what I want to point out to begin. The law doesn't work against the purposes of God for salvation that comes through faith. The law actually enhances the purposes of God for redemption for mankind. And I'm gonna talk about how that is. And then thirdly, Paul is going to show that Jesus Christ came as a fulfillment of God's promise covenant with Abraham. A literal promise that God made with Abraham. And we won't have time to get into all of it, but, but just to say this, that, that there was uh, an oath that was made, and the writer of Hebrews hits on this point. And God made the oath, and when he sealed the oath, he sealed it by himself. And it was God making a covenant With you will. And you might remember that Abraham, God God causes Abraham to fall asleep. And in that moment, God passes through the, the split animals, if you will, as a sign of the covenant that He's making. And therefore, it was not a covenant that God made necessarily, where man upholds his end of it, but God made it and sealed it on his own word and by himself, so that he could not lie, as the writer of Hebrews will tell us. And Christ came as the fulfillment of this promise that God made. From Abraham's offspring, it's said in Genesis, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And therefore, Jesus Christ himself is the promised blessing. Christ was the blessing that God spoke of to Abraham that day. Coming through the lineage of Abraham, and now those of us who are born by faith in Jesus Christ are children not of the law, but we are children of the promise. And This is Paul's point as well, which we'll see. And so all of this is arguing for justification by faith alone in Christ and not by works of the law. And so let's look at the text here. I want to read the entirety of Galatians chapter 3 from verse 6 through the end through 29. And we'll have it up here for you on the monitor as well. And I'll begin now in verse... Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 5 because in the ESV, verse 5 and verse 6 are kind of one thought. And I taught verse 5 last week, but I'll throw it up nonetheless. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. That's found in Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, and he quotes again, the one who does them shall live by them, quoting Leviticus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place by angels, by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You can underline that if you want to. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Father, we worship you this morning again for the beauty, the joy, the clarity of your word. We ask that by your spirit you would come and and bring understanding to our hearts and minds today. Apply your truth to our hearts, O great King. As we've asked you already, Lord, come and have your way within us today. We do so now again. Come and have your way. May the preaching of your word bring conviction to our hearts because not of man's words, but because of your truth. We welcome you today, Lord. Spirit of God, move among us, work among us. Preach this gospel to our hearts and apply it, we pray, to your glory. To his glory, amen? Like, like Romans, Galatians, when it comes to systematic reasoning and the application of logic and arguing a, a biblical principle, it's, it's exemplary. Paul's logic is, is it's just incredibly brilliant. And isn't it amazing, church, when we remember and remind ourselves that Paul was like the most zealous of zealot of the Judaizers? And yet, all of this was through revelation in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the same spirit that brought revelation to Paul is the spirit that brings revelation to us today. It it doesn't mean necessarily that God will reveal to the same degree because his purposes are different from one generation to the next. It was his purpose in Paul to reveal what he did for his church. But brothers and sisters, it is his purpose to illuminate this truth to us that we could take a hold of it today. What a joy that is when we when we launch into something that's so kind of systematic, that's something that's so well thought out and, and even complex seemingly from time to time. And there's really, there's a lot within this text that I am not going to be able to make a deep dive into because Paul is assuming a lot of knowledge and understanding of the Jewish law. And there's a ton of Old Testament quoting and reciting of text that, that I think he just, he assumed, was understood by his readers. And so really, it, it it deserves much more time than I'm going to give to it today. But my hope is to take what Paul has said to, and again, through the, the lens of our aim of understanding the gospel, and apply it to us today. And, and uh, I think we can do that well. And so one of Paul's main points, which I believe is a key, that I want to just begin with today, within the foundation of justification by faith lies this principle that because our faith is in Jesus Christ, God deals with his people on the basis of his promise and not on the basis of our performance. This is, a, this is Paul's point. Through faith in Christ Jesus, because of our faith, God now deals with us on the basis of the promise that he made with Abraham not on the basis of the performance that was required by the law. And as we just read, and as we'll see more in a moment, it was because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. He completed and he holds the law completely on our behalf. And as we talked about weeks ago, it is now by our union with Christ through faith that everything that Christ did and accomplished is counted as our own. Which is why it's not on the basis of our performance. It's on the basis of his promise for us. Consider the significance of that statement. For Jewish hearers, even for Gentile hearers, but in this early New Testament church, to hear words like this as one who understood the law, that it's no longer your performance that's going to please God. It's now by faith and by faith alone and we can get a glimpse of understanding as why paul would have to contend for such a truth cuz how easy it would be in the hearts of the hearers to fall back to righteousness by works right and paul's essentially he's going to bookend his argument with this truth and he begins in verse 7 and in verse 9 by making the statement He says that know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, verse seven. Those, in verse nine, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Why? According to the promise of blessing. And then as I said, he's gonna wrap his entire argument up, everything that we read in those 23 some odd verses and he finishes in 29, he comes full circle Finishing with this statement, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is an heir? It's a beneficiary, someone who inherits something from another individual. What are we beneficiaries of, church? We're beneficiaries of the new life in Christ Jesus. New creation life is what we are beneficiaries of. And I'm going to talk more about the present application of this receiving from Christ Jesus. It isn't just that we are heirs of a future promise. While we are, we are also heirs of a promise now in this present day of life with Christ. And so Paul begins all of this as we read in verse 6 with this kind of mic drop moment. And again, just... Put your your minds into the context of those who would hear this for the first time. We're quoting Genesis chapter 15. He says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He begins with this as the assertion. Abraham's righteousness came by believing God. And this is the first point that I want to make today. Abraham believed God. The entirement of the Judaizers' argument for the gospel plus works was based off God's requirement that Abraham be circumcised as a sign of the covenant that God made with him. And it's found in Genesis chapter 17, and I'll we'll put it up here. You don't have to turn there. It's where God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Genesis 17, 9. But Paul, in his absolute brilliance and insight, what does he do? He goes back before that into Genesis chapter 15. Before God had established this this covenant sign of circumcision, and he says this, and it's now this is God speaking to Abraham. It says, and he brought him outside, and God brought Abraham, Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able, able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Paul goes before this sign of the covenant is made by circumcision. he says, "Look it, righteousness came by believing God, not by works of the law." And I thought about this: Before Abraham was righteous, what was he? In the mind of a, of, of a Jew, he was a Gentile. Before he was made righteous by faith, Abraham was a Gentile. He was outside of the faith. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. In chapter 11, he says, speaking of Abraham, that from one man, and he makes this statement, from one man and he as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham as good as dead. Why? Because he was outside of faith. He was outside of Christ. And yet, what was it that caused God to declare him as, a, as righteous? It was because he believed God. Brothers and sisters, the faith that pleases God, the faith that is acceptable to God, is the faith whose object is God himself. That's the faith that God desires. That's the faith that God requires Abraham didn't simply believe on the promises of God. In fact, what did Abraham do? Abraham struggled with that very thing when God promised him a son. Didn't he? When God made his promise to Abraham, did Abraham believe God immediately? No, he wrestled with God. He didn't believe God. So it wasn't belief solely on the promises of God. And it wasn't even just believing in God as in an existence of God. It was that the object of Abraham's faith was God himself. That is what it means that Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. His faith was in the faithful one. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 20 that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith counted him as righteous, Paul says. We ought to be no different, church. As the children of Abraham, we also have the same faith fixed in the same place, fully convinced of God. Are you hearing me this morning? Fully convinced. Do you believe God, not on the basis For what he has promised to you. But do you first and foremost believe in God on the basis of who he is? That's the faith that God's talking about. That's the faith that Abraham had. That's the faith that Paul is speaking of that counted him as righteous. It was in God himself. And when Hebrews tells us that Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, what do we suppose he anchored his patience in? Again, think about Abraham. Did Abraham have a ledger book recording all the acts of God and how God fulfilled every act? No. Abraham's righteousness was given before God fulfilled the promise or was credited to him before he fulfilled the promise. So where was he fully convinced? Where did he patiently wait? He waited in the person of God. His faith was placed in God and God alone. Church, make sure and certain that your faith is anchored in the proper place. Because, see, the enemy wants us to place it in other things, even if it's to a small degree. The enemy wants our faith. He wants portions of it, even if he can't have all of it. He wants a portion of it. Is your faith in your personal achievements? Is your faith in your spouse's achievements or your spouse's abilities? Is your faith in your life accomplishments, even in your own personal diligence and self-discipline? Perhaps, could it be there? Where is your faith placed today? Because should those things fail, or when they are shaken, the enemy wants our footing loose, He wants our footing uncertain. But church, may we begin with just this simple and beautiful truth. Believe God. Believe God. Believe who he is. Believe who he says he is. Believe who who he reveals himself to be. Believe in his character. Believe God in his will. Believe that he is working his plan around you and in you and through you. Believe his word. Believe his promises. Believe in his covenant through Christ Jesus. Church, believe God. Don't just believe that he exists, but put all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your anchor into God himself. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Abraham did. And then a result, as a result of this belief, and Paul goes on to speak of it, it results in faith. It's faith to believe that justifies a man or a woman, but the result of that justification is then a life that continues in faith on the basis of who God is. Did you, does that make sense, what I'm saying? So yes, it's, are we awake today? Oh, some of us are sleepy. Don't be sleepy, church. It's faith to be justified through Christ. But in that justification, The Spirit of God gives us a measure of faith to continue on in Christ Jesus with our faith being fixed in Him. And this is what Paul says, it's the righteous who live by faith, not just who are saved by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. And what a beautiful chapter, the first two chapters that is. But it's the righteous who will live by faith. And again, this was Paul's point in the previous chapter in chapter 2. Do you remember? When he says that the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's present tense. It's It's a present, I don't remember exactly what the grammatical, I think it's like present perfect, something that happened in the past that has present effect ongoing. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith in God's sovereignty in all circumstances. Faith in his providence to work things out for our good. Faith in his provision in spite of what our circumstances might dictate. Faith in his guidance. Faith in his direction every step of the way. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? By faith, Abraham what? Obeyed God. And he went to live in the land of promise. He went looking forward to the city that has foundations, the writer of Hebrews says. Not knowing, not seeing, he had his faith fixed in God and he lived accordingly. Accordingly. Church, that's us. Just to make that connection of that really obvious point, that is us. Are you living this way? Is your faith fixed as Paul is describing? And just as a very quick aside, and I don't have much more honestly, as a very quick aside, I think this is really interesting. There has been a growing agreement over the last few decades of the interpretation from the Greek phrase "in the Son of God" that Paul quotes in Galatians chapter two, verse twenty. And in fact, if you—if I don't know if it's in this on our footnotes here. It doesn't matter, but within the Greek language, the thought is becoming more and more increasingly that the that the intent, because it can be interpreted in two ways, and it's not that the faith in the Son of God, it is the faith of the Son of God. So it's almost as though, not almost, but it's the, the, the implication is that even our faith is from God Himself. Isn't that amazing? That God will supply our every need according to the riches of His glory, even our faith, to live this life. And I love the implication of that, and I would then tend towards understanding. And what's interesting, and we find that, and it's in a number of places where it's faith in God actually can be interpreted the faith of God. So that's an interesting aside. And so Paul, that's his first point, or that's my first point from Paul's chapter three. Abraham believed God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of faith, a faithful people convinced and living out of the faithfulness of God. A faithful people convinced and living out of the faithfulness of God. That's what the gospel is. Secondly, what's more, we're a freed people. And he says that that Christ, in a sense, has redeemed us from the curse something that Paul is going to speak about more in chapters 4 and chapter 5 that we'll see. But he says in verse 13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is one of those areas that I'm not going to have time to make a deep dive into today. But it's important to say this, that the comparison is between the law and the faith in this In this portion of chapter 3 that I already read. For a Jew, keeping God's law meant living in God's blessing because of their obedience. Okay? Obedience and ability to keep the law equaled blessing. Conversely, failure to keep God's law to any degree resulted in God's judgment Or a curse against them. Before God, before we came to faith in Christ, we stood condemned in our sin, church. Every single one of us. And we know Psalm 51 well, where the psalmist cries out, That in sin I was born. In iniquity, I came from my mother's womb, right? There is not one who is righteous, Paul will say elsewhere. Not even one who is righteous apart from Christ. But this is what I want to say about this next point. That even though the law increased the trespass, is what Romans 5 tells us, that Paul is going to kind of dive into that more. Even though the law increased the trespass, the law was not working against redemption. Rather, it was given to be a facilitator of redemption. The law was given to awaken mankind's awareness of God's moral law. That's why the law was given. To bring an awareness to our hearts of, the, of what God required from his people and our inability to uphold it completely. Completely and our desperate need for the one who could. That is why the law was given. The law was given so that Christ could come, in a sense. So that Christ would be all that the law required, and thereby faith in what Christ did. All of the law is held perfectly for us on our behalf. Therefore, Christ became the curse of sin so that the blessing that was made to Abraham that Christ would be would be ours in faith does that make sense this is how it's all made possible this is the divine plan of redemption in Christ Jesus The law was given to awaken mankind's awareness of God's moral law. And as one writer says this, the law has a way of making people want to break it. Is that not true? Not even just talking about the Mosaic law. We're talking about God's moral law, right? Imprinted on the heart so that none is without excuse. It's got a way of making us want to break it. So in this way, church, the law came as a divine enhancer of the promise that was given to Abraham. It co-labored in redemption alongside the promise by enhancing our need for a Savior. And what's more, because it came later, right? 430 years, as Paul counts. Because it came later, it was subordinate to the promise of God. And this is what his whole thing is, is that it doesn't annul it, It doesn't annul the promise. It only becomes subordinate to the promise. It comes alongside of the promise, working according to God's sovereign plan to bring redemption about by the way that I've already spoken. And in Christ Jesus, the law is both fulfilled in that he completes it perfectly, he holds to it perfectly, and it gives way to a new and better facilitator in the new covenant. So where the law was the facilitator in the old, what is the facilitator now in the new? It's grace. It's grace. The law gave way to grace by faith in Christ Jesus. I was thinking about this as well. God, in His wisdom, established the law with limitations. The law was, had its own limitations, church. The law said works, but the promise says faith. The law asks, What must we do? But the promise says, What will God do? Listen to how the promises far supersedes. In the law, God says, Thou shalt, but in the promise, God says, I will. The law was reliant on man, man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility, but the promise is reliant on God and God alone, God's plan, God's grace, God's will. The law says obey, but the promise says believe. And as I already said, the law came second and is therefore subject to the promise But the promise came first and is primary and authoritative. And so so we can see, church, that this is Paul's point in verses 19 through 24, that the law was but a guardian until God's appointed time in redemption. But now that Christ has come, the law gives way to grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is what the gospel says, church. You've heard all of this before, but take it, appropriate it for yourself. Ask the Lord to root this deep in your hearts that we would live accordingly. Because we still don't live in this perfectly, do we? The law gave way to grace, freeing grace, enabling grace, liberating grace. And that's where Paul's going to go next in his letter. Church, Christ took the curse of sin. He took the the curse of the law. Literally, it says that he became a curse that we might receive. And this is the last thing to say. Christ redeemed us from the curse. And what is it that we have received through this gospel of grace? We are now heirs according to the promise. We're children of the promise. What does this mean? He says in verse 26 and verse 29, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. As, ch- as children of God, we are beneficiaries. Not just in the future sense, as I already said. Not just in the eternal inheritance, which we are but we are beneficiaries now in the present sense. Listen to how Peter speaks of this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that God's divine power has granted to us all things. What's the tense of that? Past tense with the present application. Has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, and here it is again, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Through faith in Christ, we go through a radical transformation of our nature. That's Paul's statement in Second Corinthians chapter 5. We are new creations. This is the inheritance, okay? This is what I mean. What are we heirs of? What are, as beneficiaries, what do we receive as heirs of the promise? A radical transformation of our nature. A new creation, and I, again, I say this probably too often. I love how Paul says it. Behold, in other words, would you look and see? Would you recognize that the old has gone away and the new has come? A radical transformation as heirs of the promise. Also, as heirs of the promise, we are no longer under the power of sin, Romans chapter 6, but under grace which teaches us to say no to sin. As heirs of the promise, we have received the Holy Spirit who indwells us and confirms that we are Christ's child, Romans chapter 8, and that He is our Father. And what's more, His Spirit is given to us as a counselor, as a guide, as a comforter, and as an enabler. That's what we have received as heirs of the promise. Church, we have these things now. We have been transformed. We have received the Spirit. We are being confirmed. We are being guided, we have been set free by the power of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, Paul says in Romans, but we are slaves unto righteousness. Why? Because we live like that every day? No, I don't. Because it is true of who I am, and by faith I take hold of that truth, and by the power of spirit of the Spirit, I live in that truth. And by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am being transformed day by day from one degree of glory to the next, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We are heirs of the promise. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the joy of the gospel. This is the delight that the gospel should be. And while, again, I know that we know these things, church, let's... Believe and live as the people that God has made us to be, right? This is what the world needs. Yes, this life requires things from us. Yes, our vocations have to be important. Yes, of course our families are important. Yes, respite is important. Regeneration in terms of our energies and our physical bodies and our minds, those are important things. But brothers and sisters, this is the most important thing, living in this truth, living out this truth, living as we have been created to be, amen? Amen.